but figuring out how to make them fit within a classroom, I think it really helps for teachers to actually see that in action um, and see how these things could translate into a content class. I think, I mean, not to toot my own horn, but like, I think especially a really content dense class like science, where I feel like sometimes that isn't seen as a space where these things fit because there's just this perception that there's so much content to cover and so you can't fit it in. Uh, but I was finding the content was irrelevant if I wasn't really meeting my students' needs. Hey everybody, welcome back to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast from Elevation Education that explores how we can help make an impact on our nation's highest growing student demographic, multilingual learners. I'm your host, Steve Sofronis. What are some easy ways that content teachers and specialists can collaborate to better support their multilingual learners? How can schools and teaching teams build out systems for housing key instructional resources to support practices like scaffolding? What can educators do to ensure multilingual learners have equitable access to high-quality instructional materials and content, particularly in STEM courses? We discuss these questions and much more in part one of a two-part series with Gina LePay and Kent Dwyer. I learned about the work Gina and Kent are doing through an article that was published in Edutopia in June of 2021, and I was really inspired by the strategies they highlighted to support multilingual learners in courses that demand a high level of specialized vocabulary. One key to their success has been intentional and sustained collaboration among teaching teams, which as many of us have experienced can be more difficult than it appears. We'll get into how they went about creating systems that made it easier for them and their colleagues to work together to support all learners. But first, here's a little background on our guests. Gina LePay is heading into her 10th year teaching inquiry-based science. She started teaching in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park before heading into the classroom at an expeditionary learning charter school in North Carolina. She currently teaches middle school science at an international school in South Korea. She is passionate about using science as a pathway to get students curious about and connected with the world around them. Kent Dwyer has been an educator for 17 years, focusing primarily on language acquisition. He taught Spanish in Pennsylvania for 11 years, serving as a demonstration teacher at Julia Reynolds Masterman Laboratory and Demonstration School, and then as a master teacher at Plymouth White Marsh High School. From 2016 to 2021, Kent worked in international education to support English language acquisition, first in Qatar and then in South Korea. Kent has facilitated professional development sessions on topics including digital storytelling for language acquisition, tiered units of instruction, differentiated instruction, interpersonal language use within the classroom, data-driven decision-making, integrated performance assessments, and the use of technology to promote communication. One can easily imagine what Gina and Kent can do together when they collaborate. We'll post all contact information on the show notes and the blog post that will follow part two of the series so you can get in touch with Gina and Kent via email or Instagram. As always, thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. I hope you enjoy our conversation with Gina LaPay and Kent Dwyer. Gina LaPay and Kent Dwyer, thank you so much for joining us on Highest Aspirations. So happy to be here. Thanks for having us. Excited to be here. Yeah, absolutely. It's great to have you both. Um, I, I it's it's actually really fitting, as usual, we have two people on as guests that you both are joining us together. Um, and we'll talk about that in a second. It's all about sort of collaboration here. Um, and I learned about uh, your work through an, an article in Edutopia called Using ELL Strategies in the Science Classroom. The title caught my attention. That's something that, that, um, that we're doing here at Elevation, particularly with math, um, but looking into STEM as well and trying to help 
um, uh, teachers work with students in those STEM classes. And we've done some episodes on that. But what really struck me about this article when I got into it was uh, the focus on collaboration between teachers in different areas who have different areas of expertise, um, which can really obviously make an impact on multilingual learners. It's kind of the gold standard that everybody shoots for. And um, it's sometimes pretty elusive. So I, I want to start there. Um, how do a science teacher um, and a language teacher come together to overcome the challenges that students are facing? Is that something for you both that kind of happened organically? Was it a result of something the school was doing? I know you were, at, you were at an international school. Tell us a little bit about how it started and I guess more importantly, kind of how you sustained it, which we'll get into over time. Yeah, for sure. So we both started at an international school in South Korea the same year. Uh, it's a fairly new school. So there were a lot of systems still sort of in the development phases. And my background, I'd been teaching science for a number of years. So I came in feeling confident about my skill set as a hands-on inquiry-based science teacher. Uh, but when I got to know the student population and just realized the level of kind of language learning needs that existed with almost 100% of our students um, taking English or learning it as English in the second language. Um, and so I felt a little overwhelmed by that. I didn't have a lot of experience with that. And so when Kent led a professional development session and sort of showed off kind of what he was available to do at the school, I was instantly really relieved to know that he was there and also really excited to start collaborating with him. Yes. And, Good, Kent. And I saw um, in Gina uh, a partner from the beginning. Uh, I specifically remember uh, after that PD session, she approached me and very clearly and intentionally said, I'm excited that you're here. I'm excited to partner with you. And I saw a colleague that was both um, confident and capable enough in her own practice to really reach out and say, this is an area of growth for me. And I found that very, very exciting. And then when we began to co-plan and co-teach together, her clarity in terms of what was most meaningful for kids in the content area and equally valuing their language acquisition along with content understanding was crucial. Um, she gave me access to all the resources prior to our meetings so that we both came in on the same page. Uh, during our co-planning, we were using a UBD approach uh, with language use at the center of it as well as the content understanding and then when we would leave these meetings we had a task list that we would divide up and that that mutual respect and mutual accountability was was there from the start which was great yeah i mean it sounds like this happens pretty frequently in places where i feel like it's happened to me for sure um where you meet a teacher who uh, is, is sort of like-minded and you can learn from and you can teach them something as well. Um, and that creates this kind of uh, relationship that is built on trust and mutual understanding and, and expertise and, um, and areas of improvement, areas of growth, as you mentioned, Kent. And what I've noticed in schools that um, really kind of embrace that culture of collaboration, even if it kind of happens organically because you happen to meet someone who's like-minded, um, is that it, it, it can multiply. It can, move, it can move kind of spread from one classroom or two classrooms to more. 
And I remember myself, a lot of the best strategies that I sort of implemented as a teacher came from something that I'd casually talk with somebody about or I'd observe. I'd be walking down a hallway and I'd say, oh, that looks cool. And I kind of walk in the classroom because we had that culture at one of the schools I worked at. And, and the ideas seem to really gain more buy-in and traction that way because it comes from, from, uh, from teachers who are doing the work in the classroom and seeing the effect, the positive effect on them. So talk to us a little bit about um, the effect that your collaboration had on other teachers in your school. And I think we have to like ground this and the idea that you are in, and Gina, you mentioned hundred percent of students are, are learning English, right. In some capacity. And so um, I think that's a really great kind of microcosm for the people who are listening to this podcast, who are thinking about how can we collaborate to help our, our English learners in schools and maybe have a smaller percentage. So how, how did that uh, collaboration affect others and kind of multiply? Um, as, as an EAL specialist, uh, I noticed that many teachers were really excited to partner with me, uh, but not, not everyone and not all the time. Uh, so what I saw through my partnership with Gina was that she's so respected within our organization that um, teachers would, would possibly, from a conversation with her or an observation of what she was doing, get more excited about a strategy um, or just see her take on it or how she had really embedded that into her practice. So they didn't necessarily need to hear it from me or maybe they did and they didn't really like my take on it or see that transferring to, to what they were doing day in day out. But watching another content teacher, especially one as skilled as, as Gina, was what they needed to say like, hey, I, I'd like to do that too. And I specifically remember one PD that we did about a fishbowl conversation and having Gina talk about how using fishbowl conversations in her classroom really shifted um, assessment practice and then shifted classroom talk. Um, my, my email blew up after that and I really saw her role in the PD as much more um, inspirational and what I could have done just by myself saying like, this is something I see as cool. Yeah, and from my side, I felt like I saw over time kind of more people taking me up on those offers. Cause I, again, like I said, it was a new school. So we were, didn't really have cultures established. Um, and I was really eager to learn from other colleagues and learn from Kent and the other language faculty and you know see what other people were doing, especially because for me, this was a new population of students to be working with. And so I was eager to model that by, you know, having a really open door policy in my classroom and sort of talking about what I was doing, seeing what other people were doing, what was working for them. And I saw over time, people started taking me up on those offers more. Um, so I think as they heard about it in more PDs with Kent, and then they actually started coming in and then they would see it in action and start to see how it might actually work in their content area as well. Because I think sometimes, at least in my experience, you'll hear from someone who's a language specialist or a special education specialist or a trauma-informed education specialist. And that's their whole take. That's their lens. That's their most important thing they're doing. Um, and it can be hard to really think about, well, that's what's most important to you, but I have all these other things that are important to me. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. I don't really see how this fits in the, in the limited number of minutes I have with my student. And I can't have all these things be important in the same way. Um, but figuring out how to make them fit within a classroom, I think it really helps for teachers to actually see that in action 
um, and see how these things could translate into a content class. I think, I mean, not just toot my own horn, but like, I think especially a really content dense class like science, where I feel like sometimes that isn't seen as a space where these things fit because there's just this perception that there's so much content to cover and so you can't fit it in. Uh, but I was finding the content was irrelevant if I wasn't really meeting my students' needs. Yeah, in so many ways, content's irrelevant if you're not meeting your students' needs, language being one of them. But what, you know, my take from, from both of what you just said is it's just it's, it's a mutual respect, right? And it's the fact that you have two teachers uh, who are respected in their own areas of, of expertise, but also willing, able, and excited to kind of collaborate and learn more. And that gets exciting because you, everybody knows the teachers who are making an impact, the teachers who the students are excited when they're leaving their classrooms. And if those teachers, that kind of Vanguard group is really working together to, um, to, to implement these kinds of changes, that's, I feel like, how so much of the growth happens. And then it's a matter of leadership, I guess, in most schools, embracing that and saying, okay, how can we leverage these, these, these teacher um, leaders? Um, so it's not just happening uh, in silos. So I think that's great. And again, like the context, I was, as you were, as you were talking, I kept thinking about the context and I've never worked in an international school. So in a, in a setting like that, I mean, it must spread even quicker because everybody sees, right. The need to make sure that they are incorporating the strategies that, that Ken is implementing and helping you with Gina, um, to work with, with these students. Um, and I think as, the demographic grows multilingual learners in the United States and every school, right? Almost every teacher in any place now is going to be at some point working with uh, multilingual learners. Hopefully that will, that trend will, will continue and on a smaller scale um, in, in those schools. So I thought that was uh, again, kind of like a great little microcosm of sort of what's happening uh, around our country now in schools um, everywhere. Um, so Kent, you you know you had you had talked about and shared with me some pretty amazing resources that you created for teachers to use. Um, I, I want to get a little bit more specific about sort of how the impact that 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 it had and kind of what you have done to make sure that people have access um, to the information, resources, and strategies that they need. Um, and there's a lot there. I kind of went through it a little bit. You shared you were kind enough to share some stuff with me, but I'd love to hear it from you. Like what. Um, you know, how did you go about sharing that? Um, what what do those resources do uh, for teachers who want to help their uh, multilingual learners in the way that Gina has done in her classroom? Could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, so I, I had developed at my uh, previous school. I was previously working at an international school before coming to JSU. Um, uh, a database of scaffolding techniques. Um, and within this database, I started to house examples and instructional videos and templates of um, research-based approaches to support language acquisition. And then, as you mentioned, there are a ton of resources in there. So just dumping them into a shared drive and saying, like, good luck finding something that you're going to identify as helpful wasn't uh, going to be an effective approach. So along with the teacher coach at my previous school, we developed uh, an index uh, of the strategies with a short description and a couple examples uh, that link in, within the shared drive. But then it's a searchable drive. So anything that's a, a hashtag word within that index 
uh, teachers can, can search. So to answer your question about um, how teachers can access it, let's say as an example, someone comes in and watches Gina tell an interactive story. And the teacher gets excited about that and says, I want to incorporate that into my practice as well. The teacher can then go to the share drive and search the hashtag term storytelling. And then everything that's uh, connected with that app will appear for that teacher, um, starting with the description, uh, a short YouTube video, and then multiple examples uh, for the teacher to use. Uh, on the other hand, maybe a teacher comes out of a PD um, and says, you know, can't mention this specific thing uh, that I found interesting. I don't know a ton about it. Well, he or she could then go to the index, read a little bit more about it, and then again, search that hashtag word and say, okay, I'm comfortable enough to try this independently, or I want to sit down with Ken and talk about it a little bit more in the co-branding session, or, you know, I really need to see this modeled in my classroom to, to see it in action. Um, so it's really just a way to try to offer multiple entry points for teachers to differentiate their learning just like we do for our kids. Yeah, you know, that kind of, and the way that you put it, I think is really interesting. Like it's the equivalent of, I guess I'm, I'm dating myself here, but when I started teaching, it was like people would leave, you know, packets in the teacher's room, right? Like, and say, we'd have, we have like a foreign language office and, um, and people just, there's like a tray to leave something with, here's what I've been using. And you go through this packet. It's like, well, I don't like have the time to go through this entire thing. And I can't, you know, you end up recreating something that somebody had already created. So the idea of indexing and categorizing and being able to search for it. Um, and it seems like you were really deliberate about um, how you shared that information and how you set it up so that teachers could kind of find what they needed, along with understanding that at least you and Gina and I imagine probably others were working together to collaborate on some of these things. So there were living examples. There was kind of evidence that, that it was working rather than just now it's, hey, here's a Google folder with everything in it. And I mean, as someone who used to present this to me and I looked at it, I'm like, I don't even know sort of where to start here. Right. But then you sent me another email. I said, oh, this is how you do it. There's index and there's hashtags. And now it made complete sense. So um, that's great. And that's just really, I feel like, and I'd love to hear your take here, uh, Kent and Gina, that's just a matter of, um, uh, of documenting. You're right. You're already creating all this stuff. So taking that next step to kind of make sure that it's searchable and usable by others um, I mean, how much of a lift was that for you, honestly, to, to kind of put that together after you had already created the stuff? Uh, I, I think it's, it's feasible to do it. And the cost benefit definitely uh, is, is worth it to, to take the extra time because really just including the scaffold uh, in the even the, the footnotes of your document or in the name of, of the file is enough for it to pop up in that search. Uh, and then uh, particularly in a school with an international school where you might have more turnover just by the nature of the teacher that choose to lead a more nomadic life. Um, housing resources that were proven to work is, is really important. So we're housing these resources anyway to, to have something there for you know, alignment and stability within our teaching practice. So then just making it searchable and saying, 
what's the why behind what you're seeing here uh, is not is not that much extra in terms of time and energy. Yeah, so much of it has to be just like um, discipline, right? Being able to say like, I've created this, I need to take this extra step to do it. And I love what you said about teachers who choose to live a more nomadic lifestyle. And that's kind of another lesson from the international school, right? That I never thought of. I mean, in some schools, you have teachers who stay for their entire careers, but more and more now, it seems that even in schools here in the States, there is turnover there, especially in with, with multilingual, uh, with, with language teachers. And so uh, creating those things so that they can live on um, be shared with others, I think is, uh, is just, is, is, is just best practice. I think the, the challenge is that many of us don't know how to do that. Right. So how do you kind of figure out how to do that work with it, which I think is probably a conversation for another time, but one that is probably worth having, um, at some point. So let's, let's shift our attention to, um, to students here. Um, so teaching STEM courses to, to multilingual learners or really anybody requires mastery of complex academic language, um, which we talk a lot about here at Elevation. We've had a lot of guests on to talk about that. So how have you gone about collaborating to ensure that students with a wide variety of language skills, which you do have, um, have the language necessary to fully engage in, in rigorous STEM content, which Gina sounds like is kind of what your main goal is with that inquiry-based model? Yeah, I think it starts with being really clear about what the most important lever points are um, around, like in a particular unit, right? What are the high impact vocabulary terms? What are the high impact, like both content and academic terms that you really want to focus on and allowing yourself to admit and embrace that you're not going to be able to do it all well. Um, and so you really want to focus on those high lever terms and concepts. And then really elevating those as, as a focal point of the unit. So I think part of it is having a, a good grasp of your content area such that you can identify those key levers and those big chunks, and then using those as really like the, the bread and butter of the unit. And coming, I think part of it is also coming with your students to the point where they trust that, yes, there's more to know, right? There's more language to learn, there's more to know, but that you're gonna give them those most important pieces and if they want to learn more, if they're ready to learn more, those are accessible to them, but they trust that what they're getting, the bulk of what they're getting are the really those high impact terms and concepts um, that can then be, you know, differentiated or scaffolded appropriately for kids and then finding multiple entry points. So every single student has an opportunity to be successful and contribute. Um, you know, I run like a no opt out kind of classroom where Everyone, everyone has something of value to offer every, every day in class. And be it asking a question, be it making a contribution in your small group, be it you know, saying you're confused, like really celebrating moments of confusion that are shared. Um, those kinds of culture building pieces, I think really also support the language acquisition because it shows that we're all learning. Uh, we're all learning at different paces in different ways. Uh, but it's, it's showing up and doing your best and contributing whatever that looks like on a given day that's where the value comes. And I think, I mean, you've mentioned this a couple of times just in, in talking about myself and Kent, but I think a lot of our collaboration and the sustaining part of our collaboration came from really identifying those core values about what happens in classrooms, where the value comes in a learning space with students and having students who are brave, who are taking risks, who are asking questions. That's what's important to me in my classroom. And the, the content and the vocabulary is a, vehicle for us to do that, but that's mm. not really the point. 
And if that's really clear to the students, I feel like they're more willing to take those risks and to be more successful in the long run uh, because they know that just showing up and participating is what is where the value is in class. So when Gina was was mentioning her uh, her classroom and having a no opt out classroom in which students are encouraged to talk about when they're confused or um, work on those clarification speech acts. It makes me think about how collaborative speech was such a focal point within uh, Gina's classroom and how we really worked to cultivate collaborative speech among students. Um, as part of the warm-ups uh, during instruction, students are constantly working in peers or small groups to make meaning with each other and they know they're going to be accountable um, to share with the whole class. Now for an English language learner or any student for that matter, that could feel like high pressure if the expectation is I need to produce the correct answer, the correct answer, right, in quotes. Um, but within Gina's classroom, they know that their questions or paraphrasing another student or just ex expressing confusion, um, those are gonna be celebrated equally. So students understand that that's valuable. And I really think that speaks to what Gina's talking about in terms of valuing the students first and meeting them where they are. Because yes, the content is super important and we want them to learn and know the skills, but really developing them as people and people that can communicate interpersonally and work interpersonally and collaborate with others is one of those big chunks that, that can't ever be lost in our classrooms. And um, we saw it, we saw it happening. And we saw students taking more risks and um, expressing more developed thoughts and not necessarily looking to Gina to say like, is that the right answer? But really building on one another's thoughts, which is what you want to see in a classroom. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, to, Go ahead, Gina. Sorry. Yeah, just to add to that a little bit, in the climate that we're in, also just the cultural climate in Korea, it's a pretty high, high demand, high stress academic environment where you know, correct answers are really the, the standard that students are looking for. English is a, a language that is tested. It is not a language that is spoken. Mm. And so students aren't really accustomed to just like trying, right? They're accustomed to really feeling this pressure to say it the right way. Um, but in a classroom where over time, and that's really the, what we're trying to, the barrier we're trying to get through in the beginning in my class is really convincing the students that I really mean it when I say, I'm interested in what you have to say, it's okay, whatever it is, right? I want to know if you don't know what's going on. I want to know if you have a question. I want you to find ways to contribute um, and to be part of this community together. And we all have something to learn from each other. Really, once they come to kind of believe that and see that happening, that's really when those risks start getting being taken and students start to really grow um, as people and with their language skills. Yeah, I'm really glad you mentioned that the sort of culture of 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 uh, language is something that is tested but not spoken, and like that high, that you the right answer is the most important piece. You know, I, I've I've worked in in schools like that, and gaining gaining the students' trust is the most important piece there, right? Is and, and which which you said, um, and you know, for those of of those people maybe listening and thinking, well, I work in a different school with a different set of challenges. I think that 
the common denominator is the trust factor. Like if you can get students to, to, to open up and to, as you said, celebrate those moments of confusion, which I think is, is great. And also think more about the long run. Those are the two things that I wrote down and Kent did a good job sort of synthesizing and adding to what you had originally said, Gina, but that, I mean, you got to be looking um, at the long run and what we're trying to get out of students, not only this quarter, this year, this, you know, but, but for their lives. And if, if you can break through that trust barrier, you can do so much. And so while you're in, in, a, in a high pressure situation for one reason, students who are in schools and, you know, any to pick any district or school in the United States are facing different challenges where maybe there's a distrust of the educational system, right? For, for good reason in a lot of cases, maybe there's a misunderstanding of what the educational system is because students had families who didn't go to school or went to school in a different way. And so that opening up and really thinking about, uh, you know, um, opening up those pathways by providing uh, an atmosphere of trust. And I think that was something that not to go on and on on this, but something that I was really inspired by last year with the pandemic was that there was so much um, uh, emphasis put on relationship building. And it wasn't just like, oh, yeah, we have to part of what we have to do. It was like, this is crucial. It's key because we're not even seeing our kids. So I just hope that 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 stays. And thanks for adding your perspective on that, because I think it's really important. And then the other thing is, Kent, you, you are, oh, sorry, go ahead. You wanted to say something. Go ahead. Just, just when we're talking about trust, um, really, we have to cultivate that trust among the students as well, because we know they're hyper aware of their, their social place. Mm -hmm. right? the, the, the kids we're teaching are really understanding that they're constantly you know, in a spot where I'm going to understand that the kids around me are making judgments about who I am as a person. And we know that language constructs our experience. So going back to that idea of that student to student talk, we were really intentional about the frameworks of language and interaction that they were using with each other, because it's, it's hard to put yourself out there and say, Gina, I didn't understand what you said. Can you say it a different way? that's really hard for adults. So to have, you know, a, a preteen do that, we, we gave them like an actual way to track their, their language use with each other. And there are things like eye contact and the murmurs to, to affirm. And then we practiced over and over. And really when you can say like, hey, I'm doing this because my, my teachers are saying it, the risk factor drops immensely. But then that starts to become just a thing. You practice that, like fake it till you make it thing. Mm -hmm. And you've done it enough in this, this supported setting where now it just kind of becomes the norm of how they interact. So these students are talking like scientists and like collaborative adults. It's pretty neat to see. Hope you enjoyed part one of our two-part series with Gina LaPay and Kent Dwyer. In part two, we'll focus on how setting up effective learning routines and setting short and long-term goals is much like exercise. We'll also talk about mindfulness and why it's such an important part of learning and how to incorporate it into your lessons. Finally, we'll share a few easy ways to kickstart collaboration efforts to support multilingual learners in your school. As always, if you're looking for more information and resources to support multilingual learners, check out our website at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community. There you'll find lots of free multimedia resources that you can consume in the time that you have. As always, thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. We'll see you next time. 
Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community, where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.